following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning again, everybody. Glad that you're with us. We're back uh, for the morning worship service, such as it is. But we are happy to dedicate this day to the Lord. And uh, let me just um, mention, I want to see if it's in... uh, Psalm 57, yeah, it is, just uh, good words, about waking up in the morning and praising the Lord. Verse, of Psalm, verse 9 of Psalm 57, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And that's what we hope to accomplish today, to lift our hearts in praise to God. He is worthy to be exalted. He is worthy of our every best effort and service and praise and worship. And so we dedicate this day to the Lord who made it and who made us. He's given us all of his goodness and provision What a wonderful Savior that we have, and we are grateful to Him. Our scripture reading will be found in Isaiah chapter 40, if you would turn there this morning. Isaiah 40, we finally come to the book of comfort, as it is called, part two of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted And every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. May I encourage you to think about our brother here. I saw him earlier today carrying his little daughter around in the church, and uh, that's kind of like what God does for us. He carries us in his bosom. We sang about that too, didn't we? Verse number 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Nobody is the understood answer. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. 
And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? This is the Holy One, by the way, that we're told to behold. Behold your God, O Israel. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. May God encourage you with that reading of his word this morning. We have a little bit of work to do in the scriptures, so if you'd take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. We talked a lot this morning about this coronavirus and vaccine and all of that. This is a much better subject for us to meditate upon because it tells us about our victory in Jesus. It tells us that God has delivered us through Christ and promises us a new body, a resurrection body, an incorruptible body, and this allows us to move forward in confidence. I've just summarized the whole message for you, but we'll get into the details. I had the same notes in the bulletin last week. Well, not actually the same. There is a revision here, several locations. As it turns out, every time I read through the notes to review, I say, no, I've got to say it that way. Now I've got to change this or delete that or whatever. So there's always revisions going on, but the first outline here is, is static. It hasn't changed. And what I did last week was I said, you know, we're going to have a different tune-in factor, so to speak. We have visitors. And I wanted to share a cohesive message of the gospel from beginning of, of Genesis all the way to the end. And so I kind of just I put this outline in, in kind of in the middle there in the sermon, and I just uh, really, in a sense, extemporaneously preached the gospel uh, using these concepts. And I hope that it was helpful, but that meant that I didn't treat the details of 1 Corinthians 15 like I want to with uh, the regular church family, so to speak, the normal ones who tune in, so that's where we are today with you looking at these very encouraging verses. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is a very critical chapter because it starts out with an explicit statement of the core message of the gospel, and uh, then it gives the corroborating witnesses for that message. 
uh, Paul then turns to a problem in the church, and that problem was there are some there who are teaching there is no resurrection of the dead, consequently Christ is not raised, consequently Christianity is useless. But Paul debunks that claim and uh, teaches us and reminds us by the eyewitness accounts, but also uh, by the theology of the matter that indeed Christ is risen from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he talks about the culmination of that in the kingdom and glory of God in verses 20 to 28 in the middle of the chapter. He talks about the fact of resurrection for all people. And that's a scary proposition, especially for those who do not know God who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They, like believers, will be resurrected. Unlike believers, however, they will not be resurrected to an eternally blissful life. They will be resurrected to eternal judgment. The Bible is very clear about that. As unfortunate as that is, I say unfortunate, it's a sad truth. It's distressing in some way. And in fact, it's, it's caused some people to say, wait a minute, I, that's, that's a little hard to swallow. But the Bible's clear. Jesus also himself was clear in uh, Matthew chapter um, 25. He said that uh, those that are unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. The main point of that place of punishment was for the devil and his angels. God didn't design it specifically like with some kind of glee or happiness that he was going to put humans there. But the kind of stark reality is people who don't want to go to be with God or reject God or say, look, I don't want to go to heaven with God, then there's only one other place where they can spend their eternity, and that is a place that they choose themselves, and that is the place of punishment. Paul then readdresses the matter of Christianity being useless apart from the resurrection. We plainly admit that. He talked about the constitution of the resurrection body in verses 35 to 49. Uh, There was a mocking question given to the Apostle Paul, or he considered the possibility of such when, when somebody there in the church said, oh, there is a resurrection, hey. So how are the dead raised up then, Paul? And what body do they get? You know, it's so ridiculous, Paul. Explain that if you can. And so the Apostle Paul goes ahead and does that. And he calls them fools who don't understand what God is doing. He says that our body is like a seed planted in the ground. When it is planted, it bursts forth into a new form with a new body, a new appearance, a new glory, a new incorruptibility, a new flesh. And now we come to verse number 50. And the Bible says these words. Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay, right there, just stop. I need Thurman Hunter here up in the front row. Thurman, are you online there? Give me an amen. I'm listening. Listen. Uh, some kind of flag should go up in your mind when you read this verse. This is news. It was a mystery. That is something unrevealed, unknown. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die. Whoa, that is big news. We've gone along with the assumption all the years that is appointed unto men once to die, and that is a universal, basically, except for you know Enoch and Elijah and a few others that experience bodily resurrection. That's a, that's a 100% axiom of human existence. But Paul says, no, not quite. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, that is those who are not dead at that time, whenever that occurs, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. It's it's a necessity that that happens. 
So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25. And then another, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or perhaps your Bible has Sheol or grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, in verses 50 to 53, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the transformation, there's a transformation of the body. 50 to 53, a transformation of the body. You'll notice that Roman numeral 1 in the notes. First of all, of this transformation, Paul says, the transformation is absolutely necessary. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of issues here that I want to address as far as the exegesis of this passage goes, so that you'll understand what Paul is saying. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Let's think about the concept of inheriting the kingdom of God first. That means the same thing as entering the kingdom of God. It means the same thing as enjoying the blessings of the kingdom of God. It means serving the Lord how he assigns in his kingdom. Now, there are a number of passages in the Bible that relate to this idea, but there are five particular ones that speak of inheriting the kingdom. The passages in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, we're not going to go to all of them. Uh, Maybe we could go to one of them just to uh, lay our eyes on it. Since we're in 1 Corinthians, we can just back up a few pages and remind ourselves that Paul said in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he lists a bunch of sins that if are characteristic of a person's life, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians and Galatians are the same. They say basically the same thing. Do not be deceived. Do not be tricked. Uh, There are some who have fallen for that trick, by the way. Unfortunately, there are some who have fallen for that trick and said, well, yeah, actually, they might not inherit the kingdom, but they'll be able to enter the kingdom. That is not true at all. Those who are unrepentant sinners in those passages of Scripture will not inherit because they are not saved. They are, there are around 15 other passages of Scripture that explicitly mention entering the kingdom. And as I alluded to just now, some theologians or systems of theology distinguish between entering and inheriting. I want to make sure I disabuse you of that knowledge or that idea right now. False idea. They say there are two groups. There are those so-so Christians. They will enter the kingdom. And then there are the really committed disciples. They will inherit the kingdom. In effect, what I'm saying is this, that there are believers who will enter and disciples who will inherit. The Bible cannot sustain that distinction. It does not allow that distinction is a better way of saying it. Believers are disciples. If you inherit, you will enter the kingdom. They are synonymous ideas. All true believers are disciples. Inheriting and entering the kingdom are exactly the same thing. Don't be deceived about that, my brothers and my sisters. What happens is that people who are deceived about that say, well, I I haven't really graduated to the disciple level yet, but I'm a believer, and I'll be in heaven, and I'll be okay. They're deceiving themselves very badly and will be among those to whom the Lord will say, I never knew you. Now, the kingdom that we're talking about here is not equivalent to heaven, okay? It's not synonymous entirely with heaven. The Bible teaches us that there, and let me just try to say it this way. In the Old Testament, as well as sometimes in the New, 
the future ages are kind of talked about as if under the phrase kingdom, just generically, that future glorious kingdom. But other passages of the Bible make it clear that there are two phases of that future kingdom. One is on this earth, before the new heavens and new earth, and one is after the new heavens and the new earth. The second phase of the kingdom is what we normally call or kind of simplistically call heaven. The age intervening between now and then, called the kingdom age, is different than heaven, but they have similar characteristics in some ways. In that intermediate period, closer to us in time, the Bible teaches there's a stage of history after the present church age in which Israel will be prominent, the Lord will reign from Jerusalem, Christ's people will reign with him in glorified bodies, people in natural bodies will go about in a society and live and and move and have their being, there will be national groups of people, some people will die, others will live to a great age. Isaiah 65.20 gives us that. I've listed a number of other verses in the notes there for you to look up regarding these ideas. Now, these conditions that we've mentioned are better than what exists today. Remember I said today governments have sinful people that have power, and that's a deadly combination, (laughs) sinful people with power. We'd rather have angels with power or sinful people with no power. But governments are necessary for us, and so we don't have any choice in the way we exist now. But in the kingdom, we will have sinless people with power. That is, Christ's people, redeemed, glorified, resurrected, no sin in them. They will reign with Christ, and they will reign over a society on earth of people who still do have sin and still do have natural bodies, and so on. This is why I'm very keen to help people to unconfuse themselves about the kingdom. I think I'm going to write a book called Kingdom Confusion, in which I help people to understand the kingdom is not the church, the kingdom is not specifically Israel, and the kingdom is not heaven, although it's a the eternal continuation of that kingdom is what we call heaven. So the two phases, the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, but the kingdom normally when we talk about it is that intermediate nearer time, which is the millennial kingdom. The first phase of the kingdom is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. That is when Christ reigns and then he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Remember that passage? When he ties it all up with a bow and delivers it as a gift to God and says, here, God, we've done it. We've ruled over the earth. We've kept your mandate. We've been fruitful and multiplied. We've, we've uh, developed righteousness on the earth and, and a, a flourishing of humanity and all the rest. But then the second phase is the issue that Paul is alluding to when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Okay, So then the question becomes this. A a sharp-eyed student will say, now, wait a minute. It says we have to be transformed before we enter into this kingdom. And, And for heaven, that's true. But what about for the, for, for the intermediate kingdom, this millennial kingdom as we call it? Well, look at, this is interesting, look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Matthew 25 is speaking about the, at the end of the chapter about the Lord ruling from Jerusalem. And the scripture says that he comes with his glory, sets his, on his throne. All the nations are gathered before him. And who are these nations? Well, many people read these and say, well, these are the nations of those resurrected from the dead. You know, the general resurrection. We're there finally. No, that's incorrect. These are the nations that survived the tribulation, mentioned in Matthew 24, and uh, under the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and the talents in chapter 25. Okay? But mainly in chapter 24 and elsewhere in the Bible, Revelation 6 through 19, these people survive the tribulation. They're gathered before the Lord, and he has the sheep and the goats. And he says to the, uh, let's look at verse 34. 
He says to those who are on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Best we can tell, they are these nations that survived the tribulation, people who believed in the Messiah, will be allowed to enter into the kingdom. They will be allowed to inherit the kingdom, this millennial kingdom, in their natural bodies. They will be the first citizens and residents of that kingdom. From them will come all that are born to populate that kingdom of natural humans over which Christ reigns. So that would seem to indicate that natural-bodied people can inherit the kingdom, whereas Paul seems to say they cannot. So what of this? What is going on here? Paul's sliding over some details, I think, here. The resolution, I think, is this. To participate in the eternal kingdom, heaven, you must have a transformed body, mere corruptible, natural, Adamic, dusty flesh and blood cannot inherit that phase of the kingdom. Remember uh, the, what we looked at with this glorified body in the prior verses? That transformation must occur to all believers before the eternal state commences. But God blesses Christian people with an early transformation so that they can participate in the nearer kingdom in a resurrection body. Okay, so uh, if you die today, or if you don't, and the rapture occurs, you're changed, as we'll look at in a moment. You spend a little time with the Lord in heaven, seven years, tribulation on the earth. You come back and you reign with Christ in your glorified body, in your transformed body. But some others are on the earth without a transformed body, and they will live in that glorious utopian kingdom millennium and live under the government of Christ. But we will enjoy an early glorification by which we can be free of sin and serve God better as co-regents with Christ. So it's true that sinful flesh cannot inherit the eternal kingdom, but in the millennial kingdom, flesh and blood will participate awaiting their final glorification, those citizens of that. Now, let me also mention, does Paul here reject the idea of a material body in either kingdom? Namely, is it only disembodied spirits that can participate in the kingdom? And if you've been alert, you've known that I, you know that I've addressed this issue before. The answer to the question is no. Indeed, we will have a physical, material, corporeal body for all eternity. Sin is not eradicated by simply the removal of flesh, that is, you know, physical flesh, uh, materialism, material things. Sin is not located in matter, material, or the body per se. How do we know that? Well, Christ had a material body, and he had no sin. Adam and Eve had a material body, and they had, at least initially, no sin. Christ still has a material body in heaven, glorified as it is, and it has no sin. He still has that flesh and blood. So, it's not merely a physical or tangible phenomenon that, you know, magically sin disappears if there is no body. Where, where is sin located then? Sin is located in the immaterial part of man, and it uses the body to express itself. So sin comes from the inner man, it comes from the heart, the mind, the will. It is not merely a physical thing. So don't think that, you know, my immaterial part is perfect and my body is the only, you know, it's the prison house of my soul and if I get rid of it, I'll be better off. No, you won't. Because you'll have another body outfitted for eternal existence eventually, either in heaven or in hell. So the transformation is necessary. It must occur eventually for all humans, for Christians to be in heaven. They must have a good incorruptible body. The transformation also is instantaneous. Look at verse number 52. The transformation is necessary 
and it's instantaneous. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, notice the mystery again. The moment that this happens will be such that there will be living believers. This could happen in two minutes from now, okay? Who will be transformed so quickly that they will not experience death or sleep, as he calls it. This is the grand exception to the rule that all men are appointed once to die. The grand exception. The great hope of the church, the rapture, as we call it. And we look forward to that. Just as fast as you can cast a glance or blink your eye, or a twinkle appears in your eye, so to speak, just that quick, it will be over. The transformation is so fast that it takes a unit of time which is basically indivisible. It's a humongous miracle. Can you imagine God taking, how many Christians are there in the world? Let's just say millions. Millions of people and instantaneously transforming them into resurrection, glorified, incorruptible, immortal bodies. Tremendous. There are some who are dead already, and they, along with the living, will go through a metamorphosis. That's the word, a total change. It will happen just as fast as you can think. And it will happen when a trumpet sounds. Look at verse 52, at the last trumpet. And you might want to have your finger over in 1 Thessalonians 4, just to cross-reference this portion of Scripture. 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul, comforting the believers, wants them to know that those who have died are not lost. He says in verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel also, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. There's that instantaneous transformation to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This transformation is instantaneous. It happens at this trumpet. By the way, some people really go after this trumpet idea. You know, is it the last trumpet? Isn't there another trumpet? Or if this is the last, 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 last trumpet, it must be at the last part of human history right before eternity begins. And so they use that as, a, as an attack against our dispensational approach to the Bible. I think it's too pedantic, all of that. We can easily understand this as the last trumpet of the church age. And there will be plenty of other trumpets, I'm sure. Can you imagine during the millennial kingdom there is no sounding of a trumpet for a thousand years? or nothing in heaven for eternity, uh, of a glorious trumpet sound of an announcement or uh, some glorious thing or some worship or something? No, obviously not. I think that's unrealistic to think. It's simplest to consider, as I say, this last trumpet is the last of the church age. This is the rapture. Now, some theologians are mystified when we talk about this. In fact, one of the most famous Reformed theologians of recent history, R.C. Sproul, I heard him say this one time. He said, uh, when, I, when I try to understand where does the rapture come from, my dispensational friends, the ones he had, said they really couldn't explain it. Well, you've got to turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58 and turn it immediately to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 and You can also add, turn it to John chapter 14, the first few verses there, where the Lord says, if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's not just talking about the second coming in some generic way, or, or, or the rapture as if Jesus is going to rapture people up to the clouds on his way down to the earth. No, there's some kind of distinction here between the rapture and the second coming. So there's no reason to be mystified about this. There are definitely distinct events. The second coming is in two phases, the rapture phase and the second coming proper down to the earth phase. This is a mystery beforehand, but now it's been revealed. 
That's an interesting concept. Similarly, about this mystery, there, it was known that God would gather a people out of the Gentiles. That was known from the Old Testament. Isaiah 42 and 49 tell us that. But what was not known was that there would be a church. That was revealed in the New Testament. The gospel was revealed in general terms in the Old Testament, but the slow growth and interruption of the kingdom of God was not revealed in the Old Testament. That was revealed in the New. The plan of God to harden Israel's heart, to bring Gentiles to salvation, that was a mystery not revealed until the New Testament. Romans 11 tells us. But the sequence of events in which Christ suffered and then was glorified, that was revealed in the Old Testament. So you have to carefully understand and remind yourself what was revealed in the Old Testament, what was not, before you go make kind of blanket statements. You know, people want to say, for example, well, the church existed since Adam and Eve. No, it did not. The church didn't begin until Acts chapter 2, very clearly revealed in Scripture. And so just because the church didn't exist doesn't mean God didn't care for Gentiles in the Old Testament. He certainly did care for Gentiles. And he revealed that he would even show them more care in the future. But he didn't include them in a body called the church at that time. So we listen to Scripture's teaching carefully. So the transformation is instantaneous. The transformation is necessary And finally, under the heading of Roman numeral one, the transformation is radical. It's radical. If you look at the text, it tells us the corruptible has to put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. The transformation is like what we read about described in verses 42 to 49. Dead people will be raised, will be given an incorruptible body, God has left their souls in the grave, and their bodies have seen corruption, unlike Christ's, but he will reverse that corruption. Living people will be changed to have the same outcome without having to go through the death process. Mortality will be swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 4. Let me just read that again. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. That's Paul's metaphor for death, having the body shed off from his soul or spirit. He wants to be rather further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So not to disrobe, you know, take the coat off here, but to add the eternal life jacket over it and be thus transformed immediately. Now, the new body that we're going to get, this radical transformation, is going to be made of heavenly material, I'll call it. It will be a spiritual body, sustained by the Spirit, not ghostly. It will be in the image of Christ, including moral likeness to Him. It will be immortal. It will be incapable of dying. It will be incapable of sin and disease. And how is that going to happen? Well, Philippians 3 tells us Christ is going to work with the mighty power that he has in order to transform our bodies that they will be like his glorious body. This will be another massive miracle, one of, they say, biblical proportions today. It really will be of biblical proportions. What the Bible is talking about here is flesh and blood in the context of verses 35 to 38. In other words, we have to be translated from corruptible, dusty, sinful, limited flesh and blood into an incorruptible, immortal, undusty version of a physical body to be fitted for God's work. The the nature of the transformation will be such that all the dusty, corruptible elements will be uh, discarded. They'll be eliminated. eliminated. We will have then, as verse 54 to 57 says, victory over death. We'll be able to taunt death and say, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? 
Now, in some translations or some interpreters, they look at this, uh, look at verse 56, the sting of death is, well, actually verse 55, death, where's your sting? Hades, where's your victory? And then the sting of death and the strength of sin and all in 56. The, the idea of the sting, sometimes translated as barbs, barbs. Uh, when you think of barbs, what do you think of? Barbed wire. Um, yeah, barbed wire is a bit problematic, especially if your clothes get caught up in it. Um, but think of a barbed arrow. A barbed arrow. A barbed arrow is a, is a head. It can be just a, an arrow head that has uh, the back side of it is not like this or flat, but it's like this, so that when it enters into the flesh of an animal, you can't just simply pull it out. It gets caught. It's designed to be kind of in that way a one-way device. It goes in and it's not easy to pull out. So it is with death. Isn't death kind of a one-way thing? Once, once it gets its claws into you, you can't get out of it. Not yourself. The barbs of death. So death has you. You're stuck. Except plain statement of Isaiah chapter 25 and verse number 8. Glorious truth this is. Kind of right along the lines with Job. Says God will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. God has the solution for the barbs of death. That one-way trip, it seems, that everyone takes out of this life is not just one way. It's two-way. Then he quotes Hosea 13, verse 14, mocking death, which has lost its stinger. Are you afraid of bees? Ever since I was about four, I hated bees. I got stung on my ear, and it hurt. I've been stung several times since then on my back and my neck and hand and other places. But, you know, when you're older, it's different than when you're four years old. You really feel that pain, and you really remember it. So I I haven't felt too bad about, you know, taking out some bee nests from time to time. But... What's a bee without a stinger? Just a bug. You know, if you could know that it didn't have a stinger, you wouldn't be afraid of it. Death's stinger has been taken out for the Christian. It's harmless. Now, I'm going to skip over the bottom of page 5 in my notes down to letter C. There's a technical issue there that I don't think is worth our time this morning, given the time that's left. You can look at that if you want. But just stop to think of this. Death is going to be, and actually has been, but practically for us not yet, has been defeated. All of the degradation that you experience in your body and in this world is all going to go away. It will be no more. Okay? The change of color of the hair, the loss of hair, the loss of operation of those eyes over time, the aches and the pains, the weakness, the being bent over, the inability to do what you once did if you were a very strong person at 18 through 30 years old, all of those things that trouble us today will be gone completely and forever. We'll have to find something else to complain about than our aches and pains. Oh, actually, there will be nothing to complain about. Yeah. I think we won't be able to talk much about the weather either in heaven. I think it'll be pretty good. (laughs) We'll have to find something else to talk about. In verse uh, 56, Paul explains what is the stinger of death. It's sin. By sin came death, Romans 5 tells us, just like A bee's poison can cause death. 
So sin can, does cause death. The law, in turn, revealed the strength of sin. It's kind of like the magnifying glass on the stinger of the bee that showed like, whoa, look at that. The sin that brings death, and the law just enhanced and amplified that for against us, as it were, revealed sin and enhanced its power as human nature ran up against the law. That's a funny thing, isn't it? When you tell somebody not to do something, what does that do to their flesh? It's like magic. It makes them want to do that thing you told them not to do. That's kind of the law and effect of the law. All that is done away now because Christ has fulfilled the law and defeated all of sin's power so that we can say with verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since the wages of sin is death and sin can only be dealt with by the work of Christ, that means deliverance from death also can only come through the work of Christ. There's no other religion, there's no other faith system, no other philosophy, no, no science, no uh, knowledge that can, can give any victory over death other than this. Because there's no other victory over sin, and sin causes death. You've got to have a victory over sin, worked in Christ Jesus to have a victory over death. So there's no other way. There's not gonna be, nobody's going to discover you know, the fountain of youth. They're not going to be able to cryogenically freeze you and save you for later. Everybody is going to die apart from Jesus Christ and will suffer the wages of sin for all eternity. Finally, we have an encouragement here as we close in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. Paul expects the church members not to be moved by the false teachers that were troubling them. The believers needed to remain steadfast in the truth. Their morals were going to be corrupted if they remained in the company of these false teachers. Remember verse 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Paul tells us, do not succumb to doubts raised by the evil one or by his people. You know, they tell you that the resurrection of Christ is foolish, that you're stupid, that resurrection is impossible, that the resurrection is already passed already, 2 Timothy 2.18, there was that error. But that's all man's view. God's truth is what we've been looking at here. There is a resurrection. Christ is raised. We will be raised. When you're swallowed up by doubts, you will be ineffective. By the way, if you're swallowed up by other priorities other than God, you will also be ineffective for him. How does he want you to be effective? Well, by abounding in the work of the Lord. What is that work? Conversion, transformation, edification, instruction, fellowship, worship, helping believers through their difficult times. These are things that we should focus upon. These are the things that we abound in as Christian people. And when you do, your labor will not be useless for Jesus Christ. It will have an eternal impact even if you cannot see the results immediately. Paradoxically, being steadfast and immovable means that you can aggressively move forward in the work of the Lord. Did you get the paradox? Be immovable so that you can move forward in the work of the Lord. Immovable on the doctrine of resurrection. Immovable on your assurance that Christ is raised from the dead. Staying true. Staying true means moving ahead. We will all be resurrected. You know, we're not in a position that we should just say, ah, hang it up, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We're not in that position. We know that we're not in that position. We know that we face a resurrected Christ and judgment and our own resurrection. And so I encourage you today, despite COVID, 
despite death in general, despite all the difficulties that we face, you be steadfast in this doctrine of resurrection over which we have preached now eight times. Be steadfast in that, and then you will be effective for God. Don't be swallowed up by doubts. That's the worst thing ever. People who doubt, oh, am I saved all the time? They cannot move forward. Is the resurrection true? Oh, I don't know. They cannot move forward. So be immovable on this, and you will move in the way that God wants you to move. Finally, the resurrection is necessarily true because our sin-racked, frail bodies have to be transformed in order to be outfitted for heaven. Mortality has to be converted to immortality. Corruption has to be converted to incorruption for us to live with God forever. Death is conquered completely and forever. It will be entirely gone in the heavenly state. No funerals there, thank God. Because Christ was raised, because he was seen by so many eyewitnesses, because of the truth of the doctrine of resurrection, because we will have new bodies, because we are certain of these things, then we can serve God confidently without regressing back to the basics, like, is there a resurrection? We all have some world-related things to do. I called them worldish, not worldly necessarily, but worldish. We have to do some of those things, work and home and all these sorts of things, but it's all going to be burned up and will be of no value in the next world. But nothing you do for Christ will be burned up. Nothing will be a waste of time because he is raised and every Christian will be raised with him. So go forward in this glorious confidence, dear believers. Live for God and for Christ by the Spirit because we know that Christ is risen from the dead. The Father planned it. The prophets foretold it. The disciples initially doubted it. The soldiers denied it. So did the Pharisees. The empty tomb, however, proved it. The angels proclaimed it, and we know it. Jesus is risen from the dead. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, as we close now and think about the victory that we experience in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would encourage us. Despite all that's going on around us, some of us have COVID concerns, others have cancer concerns, others have general concerns of a body that is showing its age. And Lord, all of us should have concern for those that are lost and do not know Christ. For they do not know yet victory over death as Christ has taught us. We ask for your help to share with them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.